Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, federal and provincial privacy watchdogs said that Tim Horton's mobile ordering app that many of us have violated the law by collecting vast amounts of location information from customers without our permission. We ask what lesson is there in it for all consumers. We find out what swayed the jury to side with Johnny Depp in a highly watched and scrutinized defamation and counter-defamation case against his former wife, Amber Heard, and what impact the verdict could have on similar cases. With nights getting shorter and warmer as we head into summer, we get some tips on how to get a good night's sleep. But first, the Bank of Canada hikes interest rates another half percentage point and signals there are more increases to come as it tries to tame high inflation in this country. Will it work and what impact will it have on consumers? But first, something that will probably have a much more significant impact on your day-to-day life. The Bank of Canada has raised interest rates by another half a percentage point. It's the third interest rate increase this year. It brings the benchmark rate to 1.5%, just a quarter point below the pre-pandemic level. Bank of Montreal Chief Economist Douglas Porter says it may still not be enough to curb inflation. Frankly, they need a little bit of luck. They they need things like commodity prices and supply chains um, to, to to help a bit here. Um, you know, the absolute worst thing to happen right now would be for oil prices and grain prices to take another big step up and for supply chains to remain snarled. Um, I, I think we're, we're right out at the nice edge now. Yeah, this is not just happening in Canada. It's happening everywhere. The bank, meanwhile, today saying it will, quote, act more forcefully if needed, likely showing that it perhaps intends to keep pushing borrowing costs that we pay higher rapidly in an effort to bring inflation back under control. Well, someone who will have a good take on all of this is Jean-Paul Lam. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Waterloo and a former assistant chief economist at the Bank of Canada. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Good evening, Dan. Thanks for having me. So I, I, I know we had talked about this another half point increase today. Um, were you surprised that that's exactly what happened? No, I was not surprised at all. I think the expectations that the bank would raise its uh, benchmark rate, the overnight rate, to 1.5% today was was not unexpected. Uh, Inflation has been running, as you pointed out, at 6.8% and has been running not just high but persistently high for most of 2021 and now 2022. So as you know, the Bank of Canada's target is 2% in terms of inflation and they need to hit that target as quickly as possible and interest rate, higher interest rate is one of the ways that they think they can drive inflation down in the the next 12 to 24 months. For listeners who may not know how that works, how exactly does raising interest rates drive inflation down? Well, when the central bank, the Bank of Canada, raises interest rate, its benchmark rate, which is called the overnight rate, and the overnight rate is the rate at which banks borrow from each other on, on a nightly basis, on, on a one-day basis, this triggers a series of increases in over interest rate that we as consumers and firms pay. Mortgage rates, uh, home equity line of credit, uh, rates on cars, so these higher rates act as a deterrent and reduces uh, demand for, for goods and services. And one of the triggers of inflation right now is that the, uh, there's excess demand compared to supply in, in Canada. 
and this excess demand is pushing higher prices. So one of the ways of bringing demand back to supply, and this is what the Bank of Canada is trying to do, is to make the cost of borrowing for everyone in Canada higher so that we decrease borrowing and we decrease uh, consumption and investment, and that brings aggregate demand in line with supply. That's a difficult balance, though, I would imagine, especially with inflation as high as it is. It is an extremely difficult balance because, remember, if you are increasing interest rate and uh, trying to get demand down, this might be also triggering a, a possible slowdown. And if you, go, if you try to overdo it, it might um, create a recession. And this is the fear that a lot of economists have right now. We, uh, we know that inflation is not only driven by excess demand, but it's uh, driven by uh, supply constraints that COVID and the closing down of economies around the world, including Canada, brought forward. And the, the geopolitical uncertainty and the war in U- Ukraine has exacerbated the pressure on inflation. So a lot of the inflationary pressures that we are seeing in Canada and around the world are external to, to us. And it is it makes the job of the Bank of Canada difficult. So if they go too fast and too high on raising interest rate, they may run the risk of creating a recession. And this, these episodes of high inflation where the central bank raises interest rate aggressively to bring inflation down, we have seen in the past in the 1990s and 1980s and also in the 1970s that these higher rates where the central bank trigger higher rates to bring inflation down have led to a recession. And this is something that not only the Bank of Canada is trying to avoid, but also the Federal Reserve Bank. It, it is a delicate balance because the information that the bank is receiving is in real time, and they have to make decisions in real time without knowing what uh, is the exact impact of higher interest rates on the economy. The models that we have in, in economics are not perfect. They are far from, from perfect. The models on, of inflation that we have are, are not very good. So it makes the, the job of the Bank of Canada and forecasters and economists very difficult. I know there was a lot of talk today about some of the language used uh, in the update, that it was more, say, blunt or forceful than usual. And, and the term exactly was act more forcefully if needed. Does that mean we're in for, for another large hike in the near future? Are we seeing going to see this through the rest of the year, do you think? Yes, I, I think we will see much higher rates for 2022 and even 2023. One of the things that the Bank of Canada um, monitors very closely is inflation expectations. And why they, they, they are monitoring inflation expectations? Because inflation expectations feed into wage negotiations. So, for example, if you expect inflation to workers expect inflation to run hard for 2022 and 2023 at let's say 6 or 7% then they will ask for much higher wages when they renew their contract so one of the messages that the bank of canada wants to send is that they 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 want to tell canadians that they're on top of bringing inflation back to 2%, which is their target. 
So they don't want to get expectations of inflation out of control because that will feed into further inflation. One of the other things that the Bank of Canada monitors and and they often talk about is the the so-called neutral rate of interest. And this is um, a measure of the interest rate where there is neither pressure on prices to increase or decrease at 2%. And we think that this neutral interest rate is between 2 to 3%, and they, they aim, they think that it's more around 2.5%. So with the increase of 50 basis points today, we are at 1.5%. And to get to this neutral rate, which will bring inflation back to 2%, they need to go 100 uh, out of a percent to get to two two and a half percent if we believe that's the measure of the neutral rate. Now, I think, and many economists, I think, agree with me that the bank will have to go beyond two and a half, beyond the neutral rate measure that they think is is appropriate. And simply because inflation has been uh, running hot and has uh, is, is very sticky right now. So to bring inflation down, they will probably have to run interest rate uh, higher than their measure of a neutral rate, which is again between two, two to three percent. So expect rates to go up by at least another percent by uh, the end of the year, first quarter of uh, 2023. I'm speaking with Jean-Paul Lam. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Waterloo and a former assistant chief economist at the Bank of Canada. We're talking about the bank today raising interest rates by half a percentage point. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about just what impact that's going to have with so much borrowing out there, with so much debt. What kind of impact do do these rising interest rates and perhaps continue rising interest rates? What are they going to have in terms of impact on all of us? Uh, And did the Bank of Canada wait too long to tackle this? Because for a long time, it was talking about uh, inflation uh, being temporary. And certainly uh, it's not, at least it's not yet. Uh, We'll get to that after this. This half hour, I'm speaking with Jean-Paul Lam. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Waterloo and former assistant chief economist at the Bank of Canada. And we are talking about the Bank of Canada's decision today to uh, increase interest rates by half a percentage point to 1.5%. Um, this is going to have, an, especially if it continues, this is going to have quite the impact on people who've borrowed a lot of money in this country. What's it going to look like for variable rate mortgages and so forth? Yes, definitely it will uh, impact consumers and and households with uh, available rate mortgages. Unfortunately, in Canada, about 70% of mortgage holders have a fixed rate, so they won't see any impact, at least until renewal, on their mortgage payments. But even those who have uh, these fixed rate mortgages, they do have home equity line of credit. And uh, about 3 million Canadians hold a HELOC, and, and the average amount is, uh, last year was around $65,000. And we know that the average mortgage in Canada is, is about $350,000. And if you start factoring in that the Bank of Canada will increase uh, the interest rate by another percentage point by, by the end of the year or the first quarter of 2023, so on an average mortgage of $350,000, that's about $300 more per month to service that debt. 
So that's a lot of money that consumers won't have to spend uh, on on goods and, and services or to save, but they will have to use to service that debt. I think the Bank of Canada is very aware of the impact of higher rates on uh, households, especially mortgage holders. One of the uh, worries that uh, keep, I think, a lot of economies up and certainly the government of the Bank of Canada is the high level of debt that Canadians have. The, the debt to income ratio in Canada is $1.8. So for every amount of uh, dollar of income that Canadians have on average, we have $1.8 of debt. So you can see that um, high interest rates and these high rates will uh, probably persist for, for a significant amount of time, given how sticky inflation is and persistent inflation is, these uh, higher rates will definitely impact the uh, finances of households and also firms going forward. It certainly creates an atmosphere whereby people might start to get angry about things. Is There's been some criticism of, of central banks in general. I know that the Fed isn't any different in the U.S., but here as well, that they waited too long on this. Because I remember even listening back maybe you know a year ago, maybe a little bit more, that this was going to be temporary, that the rising inflation was not something that was going to be a long-term issue. Did they get that wrong, uh, Jean-Paul? Yeah, well, Ben, as you as you said, during 2021 and part of 2022, they they use this the word transitory inflation a lot in their press communique in Canada, in the U.S. and in in Europe as well. I think the the uh, Jerome Powell and uh, Janet Yellen yesterday they did their mea culpa regarding this this word of the use of the word transitory, and they uh, they said that they were wrong about how inflation uh, evolved over time. Honestly, it is difficult, given the information they have at the time, uh, to foresee what inflation was going to ha- what was going to happen to inflation in-, in the future. But given the nature of the shock with uh, supply constraints due to COVID, I think it was definitely a mistake in hindsight, obviously, for the Bank of Canada to stick to this rhetoric of transitory inflation. What this has done is that we are starting to see an erosion of credibility in the uh, the Bank of Canada because we are starting to see inflation expectations in in the data creeping up. Um, And and that is an indication that uh, we, we expect inflation to stay around. Uh, for for much longer than we are used to. But I think what Canadians have to remember is that the Bank of Canada since the early 1990s have had an excellent record on keeping inflation at 2%, which which is that target. And I don't expect them to deviate from that for a significant amount of time. I think the biggest worry for, for a lot of people and for economists right now is that a lot of these factors driving inflation are external to Canada, and we don't have any control on them. And if these factors, especially the war in, uh, in Ukraine, that is putting enormous pressure on commodity prices and food prices, energy as well, if that war continues and become entrenched, then we will see uh, inflation getting even worse in in the next few months, especially food and energy prices. So, as you, as as Doc Porter mentioned in, in at the beginning of his uh, interview, I think we need some luck here. We need these external fa- factors to abate in the next year, so that 
all the interest rate increases that the Bank of Canada is doing start bringing inflation down. Jean-Paul Lam, thank you so much for your uh, time and insight tonight. I appreciate it. Pleasure to be here, Ben. Thank you. I don't have many restaurant apps, but uh, for quite a while, because I worked right beside a Tim Hortons, I had a Tim Horton app, a Tim Hortons app. It turns out a lot of us do, uh, millions, as a matter of fact, across the country, not surprisingly. Well, today, federal and provincial privacy watchdogs say that Tim Hortons mobile ordering app violated the law by collecting vast amounts of location information from customers without our knowledge. Um Privacy commissioners say people who downloaded the app had their movements tracked and recorded every few minutes of the day, even when their app was not open. The investigation came after a National Post reporter obtained data showing that Tim Horton's app on his phone had tracked his location more than 2,700 times in less than five months. Uh, Again, uh, privacy commissioners were not pleased with this. Um, Quote, the consequences associated with the app's collection of that data, the vast majority of which was collected when the app was not in use, represented a loss of users' privacy that was not proportional to the potential benefits Tim Hortons may have hoped to gain from improved targeted promotion of its coffee and associated products, the report read. Now, the company says, or at least it turns out the data was never used for that purpose, doesn't matter. Uh, the company says it stopped collecting that data in 2020, at least the report does. And the report says that while the Tim Hortons app was not compliant with privacy laws, the company has since taken measures to resolve this issue. Uh, from the company, quote, we've strengthened our internal team that's dedicated to enhancing best practices. Don't you love that word enhancing? I don't even know what it means, really. Uh, when it comes to privacy, we're continuing to focus on ensuring that guests can make informed decisions about their data when using our app, says Tim Hortons. Well, what broader implications does this have? And 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 how surprising is it? We thought we'd find out. Joining me now is Sharon Polsky. She's president of privacy and the Privacy and Access Council of Canada. And she joins me now from Calgary. Uh, Sharon, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. I, I knew I got through a lot there. Just wanted to sort of set the table. But you weren't surprised by this finding, were you? Oh, not at all. This is the game that is played and has been played for a very, very long time. What is that game? It, I mean, it sounds like the game is uh, we'll collect all this data and if we get caught, we'll say we're sorry. Well, you have to keep in mind that Canada's privacy legislation uh, was enacted anywhere from the earliest in the early 1980s to the federal uh, private sector privacy law, the Personal Information Protection Electronic Documents Act, PIPEDA. That came into full force just around the turn of the century, a generation ago, um, when fax machines were still well in use. None of the laws contemplated the technology that we have today or the hidden collection and sharing of data from us and about us, and that's important to keep in mind. Meantime, the Federal Privacy Commissioner's predecessor in the earliest years of our century uh, reviewed a case, a complaint, that basically was someone realized that their bank was sending their personal information to the United States for processing. The Federal Privacy Commissioner's Office investigated and said, yes, indeed it does. But somewhere in the fine print, there was a notice saying that they were going to do this and you've continued banking with them. So you are deemed to have accepted that. 
And that's, that pretty much set the standard. So now we have language in, you've seen them, privacy policies. I've written them. They are so-called privacy policies because they give you a really good, warm, fuzzy feeling that the company cares about you. They care about your privacy. They are going to safeguard every shred of information you've provided to them, except that's not their business. Their business is to increase their net profits and provide the greatest return possible to their shareholders, their investors, which is why the language in these policies say, we respect your privacy. Sounds good, is meaningless. We will do all these wonderful things. We will, oh, we will share information with our partners, but we won't tell you who those are. And when they change, we won't tell you who those new ones are either. We will collect information about you for business purposes. Everything, every legal endeavor the for-profit business participates in to improve their bottom line is a legitimate business purpose. So is trading and sharing information to increase their profits. So the policies might sound wonderful, but they effectively give the organizations carte blanche to do as they wish. And the problem is, once you consent to a company, an organization collecting your information, according to these very broad, vague terms, they in turn give your information to their providers, who in turn can give it to their providers and their service providers, to advertisers. I did a very, very quick check uh, this evening before we started chatting. Uh, Tim Hortons, right now, their privacy policy, the summary is 15 pages long, 4,540 words. Then you go to the full policy, you follow the link, and the full policy is only 12 pages, 3,911 words. So you're looking at 27 pages of legalese and gobbledygook that most people aren't going to look at, and if they do... Yeah, you're not going to read that if you're downloading an app to order yourself a coffee. I mean, uh, yeah. That's right, because you're going to get points. (laughs) Where did Tim Hortons go wrong here? Where do they, where do they go wrong? Because they're being, they're being singled out for something I suspect lots of, lots of uh, companies do, but they got, something happened here. Well, what's your take on, on what went wrong for them? They got caught. It's as simple as that. It's like the uh, Cadillac Fairview shopping centers across the country that were found to have been collecting facial images for facial detection, facial recognition. The commission has also did a joint investigation on that one and found they too were uh, in violation of privacy legislation. They got caught. Most companies don't get caught. Why? Because most people, and I'm talking from children who are raised with apps on devices in their hands from the youngest of ages to the people who write our laws, to judges, to teachers. Despite the fact that computers have been on our desktops for almost a half century, 
in daily use, certainly for a generation, there really is no education. Sure, we have courses teaching kids to code, and it's great. They can build the next you know, new mousetrap or video game, but they don't know that the law exists, that there are restrictions on what you can or should or shouldn't collect in the way of personal information and what you're allowed to do with it. So we're teaching them to code, and that's great, even though not everybody's going to have to code in the future. But it's no different than me flipping my car keys to the kid across the street and saying, here, have a good time, but stay safe out there, without explaining to them that when you see a stop sign, this is what it means, and this is how you have to respond. Sure, There's a lack is, of education. Is, is, is your take on this that most people are ambivalent to that, uh, that we do know, for instance, that, that apps will track our information? We even have options now to turn off some of that stuff, uh, but that most people just don't, don't care. And, 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 and if so, why should we care? Why is it important that Tim Hortons not know our every movement while the app is off? Oh, there's a lot in that question. Um, yeah, oh, there's a lot in that question. I know. I mean, that's that's a there's a, there's a, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And, and we only have another minute that's before fine. the break, but let we, me, let we me can get to it after two. Sure. No, no. Easy enough. We, we've been told for decades, literally, no one cares about privacy. Get over it. That was Tim McNeely at Sun Microsystems in 1999. Then we had the Twin Towers... Uh, in New York City, and in an effort to increase security and protect national security, we were told that it's righteous and patriotic and proper to give up a bit of our privacy for security and give up a bit more and a bit more for that promise of security, which still hasn't come about because we still have horrible things happening in our world. Uh, we have been told daily, if you see something, say something. You don't see a nosy neighbor go up to the next door neighbor and say, hey, whose bike is that in front of your yard? Hey, there was a car parked. Is that your visitor? No, we call the police now. We installed video doorbells to track and monitor everything. We have been told by the companies that make the technologies and the governments that profit from it because technology development means employment and sales. Both of those generate taxes. Governments want taxes. So right. we've been told that we're not supposed to care about privacy because nobody else does. And it's a big psychological ploy to get people to cave and agree and to it. And besides, if that's all that's out there, what choice do we really have? That was pretty concise. We're going to take a, a very short break. When we come back, maybe some advice to people listening on how to protect their privacy, considering it's there to do if you choose to take the time, perhaps. We'll get to that right after this. I'm speaking with Sharon Polsky. She's the president of the Privacy and Access Council of Canada. We're talking about federal and provincial party watch privacy watchdogs today, saying Tim Horton's mobile ordering app violated the law by collecting vast amounts of location information from customers even when they weren't using the app. And we've been talking about apps in general. Um, Sharon, do you have any advice for people who are worried about their privacy, but also don't mind the convenience of using an app on their phone, for instance, when they're going to have a coffee? Well, that's the whole thing. It's sold as a convenience. And honestly, I've yet to figure out, especially during the pandemic, I'm going to use an app to order ahead so my coffee is poured 
as I drive up, except I'm going to have to sit in the lineup along with everybody else. How is that any more convenient? I don't know. But if I buy seven coffees, I'll get the next one free. Is it worth it to me to divulge and let the company make money off of my location, my preferences, tracking that my vehicle goes not only from a location where it is every night, so presumably it's where I live, to their restaurant, to a church, a synagogue, an abortion clinic, a mosque, a certain school, uh, a psychiatrist's office. That's the sort of information that they actually do compile about us. To me, no, it's not worth it to get a free cup of coffee. My privacy is worth more than that. Everybody has to make their own choice. But how do you make an informed choice when you don't know and you can't find out what information really is being collected from you and about you and from whom? Because all of these companies don't just collect information from you. It's information about you. So you visit a website that has the nice little button at the bottom uh, so that you can share with Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. As that web page is loading, all these companies already know that you're looking at that web page. You don't have a choice because the cookies, the hooks are in there. The reporting is already being done. And as you travel across the web, you are being your interests are being compiled in the background. And that is the information that is, it's not sold. And that's how they get around it. We don't sell your information. They don't, but they will sell, they will accept a fee from an advertiser to put that advertiser's message in front of you. They're keeping all the information and they're getting the money. So what do you do? Sure, you can go into your phone. If you're an iPhone user, you go into settings and privacy, scroll all the way down, look at the app privacy report, and you might be a little bit surprised to see how frequently which apps are actually using things like your location and sending that information to, we don't know who, because it's very difficult to find out. You can set your privacy settings on your web browsers, and I hope everybody does. And on your phones. But the more we try and protect ourselves, the technology companies are coming up with more and more creative ways to circumvent our wishes. Meantime, they say we respect your privacy. So the thing that has to happen is there have to be laws that really do protect our privacy and give us a genuine, effective right to privacy. That means the the onus has to not be on you and me to read through these 30-page privacy policies and try to understand them. The onus, and, and that's for every single app, every single website, every digital anything, the onus has to be on the platforms and the companies providing the information to us. That's a switch. There have to be laws that in Canada that enshrine privacy as a fundamental human right, as was declared by the, the United Nations years ago and in most other countries 
democratic countries have recognized privacy is a fundamental human right in Canada. It has not yet been recognized as such. We have the most effective thing any of us and every one of us ought to do is contact our elected representatives at every level, municipal, provincial, territorial, and federal, and tell them to stand up for their constituents, you and me, and the rest of Canada's population, and change the laws substantively to protect you and me and our information. And this business that privacy is going to somehow impact and, uh, and, and hamper innovation is an absolute red herring because innovation happens when there are challenges. Sharon, I'm down, to the la- I'm down to the last minute. I'm just giving you the minute warning here, if that's okay. All right. People have to speak up for themselves. Pounding your keyboard and complaining on Twitter and, and Facebook is great. It feels good, but it doesn't do anything. Talk to your elected representative, your MPP, your MLA, your MP. Sharon Polsky, thank you so much for your insight tonight. Fascinating and good advice. My pleasure. It never fails. Celebrity trials really do capture a lot of people's imagination. Maybe it's just watching people who are famous or rich uh, laid so bare in a, in a forum that is so in some ways familiar, democratic perhaps. Who knows? Certainly, the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp court battle joins the ranks of the highly watched and followed celebrity trials. A reminder about what it was about, it was based on a defamation lawsuit Depp filed against ex-wife Heard after she wrote a Washington Post op-ed about domestic abuse that Depp says irreparably hurt his career. Depp sued Heard for $50 million, claiming she libeled him by describing herself as a, quote, public figure representing domestic abuse. Heard filed a $100 million counterclaim after Depp's lawyer called her allegations a hoax. Each accused the other of physical assault and destroying their each, each other's careers. And the six-week trial featured a whole lot of lurid deta- details about their short marriage. Today, the seven-person jury reached a verdict. Here are the highlights. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven by clear and convincing evidence that Ms. Heard acted with actual malice? Answer, yes. As against Amber Heard, we, the jury, award compensatory damages in the amount of $10 million. As against Amber Heard, we the jury award punitive damages in the amount of $5 million. Do you find that Ms. Heard has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, no. As against John C. Depp II, we the jury award compensatory damages in the amount of $2 million. As against John C. Depp II, we, the jury, award punitive damages in the amount of $0. So just to uh, clear that up, Johnny Depp was awarded more than $10 million and vindicated in his allegations that Heard had lied about him abusing her before, during, and during their brief marriage. But the jury also found that Heard was defamed by one of Depp's lawyers who accused her of creating a detailed hoax. The jury, jury awarded her $2 million in damage. So... What does this all signify? And will this be appealed? What's going to happen next? And what broader implications does this whole trial have when it comes to accusations of abuse against powerful people? 
Joining me now is Dr. Lillian Glass. She's an expert in the field of communication and the psychology of human behavior, the author of several books, including the best-selling Toxic People, and turns out she's trained in mediation as well and knows a lot about courtrooms, so a perfect guest to talk about all this. Welcome back, Dr. Glass. How are you? Oh, great to be on your show. Really, I'm happy. Well, were you surprised by what you heard today? I think, I think. I mean, a lot of people oh, were watching. Were you surprised by the verdict? N- not at all. Not at all. Because mm-hmm. we saw in real time somebody lie, lie, and lie some more. And we really saw this pathology right in front of our eyes. And, like, for example, we, we watched her facial expressions. We watched how she never shed a physical tear when she was crying. She would just have this uh, contorted look on her face, but it was phony, and people picked that up. She had so many uh, things that she did when she was speaking, uh, the tone of her voice, the way she uh, went on and on and got into too much detail, and all of those things constitute deception. And the public isn't stupid. They they picked it up. And thankfully, the jury did too. The jury was sitting right there, not far away, I guess. I mean, this really did become um, a bit of a referendum on, on her story, right? On whether, um, on whether she was telling the truth in, in all this. Absolutely. And, and you see that, um, you know, her going off on tangents all the time. And, and she was uh, giving so much information and, and not being on topic and being defensive. And it was quite annoying. And then she would look at the jury and talk to them. And that's not something you do. So it was very contrived. And and people were very, very um, disturbed about that. And the reason why, you know, you said earlier, we've really uh, spent time watching this trial because it's been in intriguing i mean more intriguing than any drama we've ever seen any series any tv show because we've seen a sociopath in action real time and this was just fascinating to people people spent six weeks watching this and what that means is they've invested they've invested their emotions they've invested their time so they feel very much a part of it then there are the people that are people that have suffered abuse, the Me Too movement people who have really uh, had trauma in their life because of this type of abuse. So they had an eagle eye out. And then there were people that uh, we saw that, that, are, that were just very, very uh, concerned about uh, the abuse that uh, Johnny Depp did to himself with the drinking and the smoking and the constant drugs. So, and from that point of view, you know, there were a lot of things that people could relate to. It did feel, watching bits and pieces of it, I didn't watch a whole lot of it. I watched sort of the highlights, but it did feel like just the, I mean, just watching a a train wreck of a marriage on, on trial and trying to figure out who had done what to whom at some point it almost felt like it almost felt voyeuristic. I mean, it was almost difficult to watch, to be honest. Uh, I, I honestly thought going, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Because there were, that was very well said at some point it was so difficult to watch because there were times where, where you just were cringing and what really ruined it for 
Amber for the rest of her life is the most disgusting, grossest act she did, uh, where she left, you know, feces in the bed. And that's the ultimate act of anger. Um, You know, we've seen little children do it, you know, when they've been toilet trained and they've been, uh, you know, they know better, but they'll, because of rebellion or whatever, as a little toddler, they'll, you know, go in their pants or whatever. And we've seen animals do it, but know better. And so we see a grown human do it. It's shocking. It's, It's just beyond shocking. So this is the thing that she'll be known for. And people can't get past that. No, that that part of it was certainly uh, back to the defamation aspect. Because this really was actually a trial about who would you know who would lie about who and how much damage had been done. Um, mm-hmm. It was it, that was also. Do you think this will have outside of of the impact of this trial? I mean, we are we are in the midst of the Me Too movement. Things have changed. Um, how did this? Was this trial in your mind? Outside of that, was it was it so peculiar that it was that it shouldn't be seen within the greater context? Because I'm reading lots of comments tonight from both sides. People obviously very happy that that Johnny Depp has won here, mostly, and others that are very angry that uh, that uh, including Amber Heard herself, whose statement was mm-hmm. all about sort of you know victims not being believed or survivors not being believed. Uh, what kind of impact do you think it's going to have on that? Well, I think it takes the meeting movement to another dimension that men can also be in the Me Too movement and they can also be abused. So this is a very, very powerful thing because we never think about it from the male point of view. But that is very, very true. And we've seen it firsthand. We've also seen, you know, that the people that are angry uh, that Johnny won and that, you know, they're on Amber's side, Team Amber, those are people that are collapsing their own experience with emotional and uh, physical abuse with the with what happened actually physical abuse mostly because the bottom line is when you see the deception the lies and how much she abused johnny i mean with the throwing of the bottle the the we've heard it from her mouth how she abused him and yet she was putting herself up as the poster child for uh, domestic abuse when she was the biggest abuser of all time. So I think, you know, the people that are for her, if they really dissect what she did and get their own issues out of it, um, they'll see a different perspective. But unfortunately, they, some people can't because they've collapsed it so severely. I'm just surprised that any lawyer let either of them <laughs> take it this far, but I guess there were, I mean, obviously there was, there was a case to be heard and the, the jury heard it today. Um, I'm talking to Dr. Lillian Glass. She's an expert in the field of communication and the psychology of human behavior. Also the author of several books, a term you may know well, toxic people, um, which I think we saw a lot of in this trial, obviously, uh, trained in mediation as well and, and has spent time in courtrooms, um, including mm-hmm. with witnesses, um, when we come back, we'll talk just a bit more about what the impact on their careers will be because, uh, you know, we'll see Johnny Depp has obviously been in trouble as well and Amber Heard. I mean, this can't have, can't have reflected too well on either of them for the future, but we'll see. We'll talk about that after this. I'm speaking this half hour with Dr. Lillian Glass, an expert in the field of communication and the psychology of human behavior. Also has a lot of experience both in mediation and in courtrooms, including working with witnesses as well. So 
perfectly suited to talk about the end, the verdict today in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial, which really went Johnny Depp's way. Uh, the jury awarded him more than $10 million in a unanimous verdict essentially vindicating his allegations that Heard had lied about his abuse of her before and during their marriage. Uh, the jury, though, also found that uh, Amber Heard was uh, correct in one part of her defamation suit that uh, uh, one of uh, Depp's lawyers had called, accused her of creating a hoax that included roughing up their apartment to make it look for police, worse for police. And the jury awarded her $2 million in damage on that. Uh, their reactions Johnny Depp, the jury gave me my life back. I am truly humbled. Amber Heard, I'm heartbroken that the mountain of evidence still was not enough to stand up to the disproportionate power, influence, and sway of my ex-husband. Uh, Dr. Glass, it doesn't sound like they're going to bury the hatchet. No, I don't think so. I, I think that ship has sailed a long time ago. So, well, this could, I mean, there are opportunities here to appeal. I would imagine, I mean, no, I know you're not a, I know you have some law training. I don't know how much of a, yes. I, I could ask you a legal question. Um, but, you know, there, there is sort of a contradiction, perhaps. We know the details of why the jury found in favor of Amber Heard on that one point. Uh, but there certainly seems to be cause here for, or at least an opportunity to, to appeal. Well, when you really look at appeal, you wonder what attorney is going to do it. Will her own a tier, uh, group do it pro bono. I mean, that costs a lot of money to do something on appeal, especially in a case like this. And also, even if there is an appeal, I think the fact of how to find a jury that hasn't heard about this is going to be very difficult. Um, the, the way their lives are going to uh, end I, in terms of you know how the public will react to them uh, professionally, I think Johnny, for Johnny, the world is his oyster. I mean, he loves rock and roll. He loves uh, music and he's, you know, he's just going to do exactly what he wants to do. Concerts, traveling around and the films he does, uh, they will be blockbusters because people will just, you know, line up around the block to see a Johnny Depp film and to support what he's in with Amber. It's a different story because people yeah. um, in Hollywood are going to have a hard time working with her and hiring her because, you know, she's considered damaged goods, so to speak. I wonder too, I mean, cause I was watching that thinking they're both going to lose here. You know, there'll always be a shadow hanging over Johnny Depp for those who didn't who didn't pay close well, attention to it. You know, I, I wonder, I mean, I just, that yeah. was my personal view, just watching it. I thought, I thought, honestly, I thought this story was going to say, I can't believe you brought this in front of us. Please take your problems home and figure this out with a, with a counselor or someone who can talk to you. I guess that right, wasn't possible. Right, right. But with Johnny, you know, you have the sympathy that if he did act up, it was because of his alcohol and drug abuse. And there's a sensitivity to that. People, true, true. you know, are more forgiving of that. Um, yeah. Whereas they didn't see it. There's, you know, we, we see her uh, taping him. We see her uh, vicious in the way she talks to him. And we saw his complete naked openness, emotionally naked openness, where he talked about his own family dynamics of growing up with his mother. And basically, in psychological terms, uh, he married a person just like his mother. And what Freud right. once said that was quite brilliant, what we don't resolve, we repeat. So in essence, he's, he repeated his childhood with her. 
Yeah. No, I, I mean, agreed. Where is this money going to come from? Because this is an eight-figure damage, uh, eight figures, eight figure damage. I mean, millions of dollars awarded, uh, to Johnny Depp here. Is that, he's ever going to see that money? Do you think? Well, she has $3 million from Aquaman that she won. And then she has $7 million from the divorce or maybe six because she gave some of it away. So let's say we have $6 million. She just needs to come up with, uh, another couple of million. And, uh, yeah. you know, we don't know what she has besides that. So, you know, she may be declaring bankruptcy afterwards. I mean, we don't really know. But one thing I can assure you is that uh, her team, I mean, the opposing team will go after her for that money. I mean, it's just the principle. People are, are furious. People are not going to let this go. I mean, it's not like, oh, well, if she can't afford it, that's just the... You know, Johnny may feel like that, but maybe the people uh, that uh, are surrounding him may not. And they may go for, you know, making this happen. And then, of course, there's situations where there's a perjury issue. And it's just brought up so many different issues. But, you know, Amber's not going to back down and she's still going to think of herself as the poster girl for abuse and saying that this is unfair and she can't believe it. Um, what would have been better if she would have not received a penny from this uh, case? Yeah, that's, that's going to add. That would have, yeah, that gives her a little more. Uh, that adds some complexities, confidence. does it not? I mean, you know, you, you've, you're a student of all this stuff, you know, you know it all. How would you, what have we learned here? How, what should we walk away with? Uh, because a lot of us will uh, turn off, turn it off now. I only have about three minutes, but uh, what should we walk away question. from this? Yes. What we've learned is if you're with a person and it's bad from the beginning, run, because this is not a new situation. This has escalated. They were horrible during their honeymoon. They were horrible during uh, the early years of their marriage. So if you see a toxic person and somebody that you're having some issues with, run. Do not continue. And I guess the trial, we'll see what happens to their careers. We'll see what the aftermath of this is like. Um, I know Johnny Depp was in a bar tonight in London. We saw that. Uh, certainly Amber Heard didn't look too happy in court today. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, I guess that is the advice. I mean, at the end of the day, what we were watching, defamation aside and so on, was just a horrifically toxic relationship yeah. playing itself out in the most toxic of ways. Uh, and, and, and the jury, and the jury believed one person was more responsible for that toxicity than the other. Exactly. And, you know, there, again, there are no winners, like you said earlier, because, mm. uh, you know, deep down, there's been suffering on both sides. And, uh, you know, when, when you have, like Amber was talking about her uh, having death threats, and somebody wanted to microwave her child. So the, the level of hatred is so severe. Uh, and that's what it's really brought out in people. So it's really fascinating to to see this case and to realize, thank goodness this isn't me. And thank goodness, you know, I'm not going to get involved in something like that. Yeah. The, the vitriol aimed at her wasn't, was, was no less pleasant as well, regardless of the outcome of the case. Dr. Glass, as always, thank you so much for your time. It's always great to get your insight on these things. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, are you feeling sleepy yet? 
Nothing like a good lullaby. I don't know if you find this. I do at times, especially with the light and the heat, because when you wake up early and the sun's up, it's hard to go back to sleep sometimes. But spring and summer months can make sleep feel less possible, impossible sometimes with everything from heat to noisy late night stuff going on. If you have your windows open, bird songs in the morning, early sunrises. A lot of studies have shown that our sleep changes for the worse when springs arrive, spring arrives. Um, and of course, being stressed about it never helps. So we thought we'd go get some advice. So Cox Tango is a sleep therapist and registered respo- res- respiratory therapist at Clinical Sleep Solutions in Vancouver. And he joins me now. Welcome back. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Glad to be back. So is this indeed true? I've read the studies. I, I gather it is, but that we uh, we don't sleep as well when the days start to get uh, longer and warmer and the nights start to get shorter and hotter. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the first challenge that we encounter in sleep is really this whole idea of springing forward. I mean, we artificially create a sleep problem in our society by changing our, our time clock and, and advancing it forward. So we're already creating a deficiency at that point. But then when you start to introduce other factors that we can't control, such as, you know, increased period of light during the nighttime. So like even right now, it's 9.30-ish at night, and we still get some semblance of light. And, I, and I'm sure as we get into the summer, up to 10 o'clock at night, we're still getting bright lights. And you know, the way our body internal clock works is that we, we actually – start to get sleepy when it gets dark because the darkness facilitates the production of melatonin in our, in our body. But when we start to now uh, still uh, introduce some sunlight, it actually prevents that melatonin from building up and therefore our ability to, to main, or to start to get sleepy starts to get affected and that becomes a problem. Then you start to bring it into the morning where you're sleeping late because you're, the sunlight's up late, but then early morning, 5.30 in the morning, the sun is up, and it's great. I mean, for, for most people, it's great to have that much sunlight, but then if you think about the sleep cycle by itself, by nature, then uh, again, our melatonin is suppressed, and as a result of that, we're waking up earlier, and, and then we actually have less total amount of sleep during the, the nighttime. I guess heat as well probably plays some kind of role. Heat and noise, because I know often we have the windows sure. open in the in the summer, and then there's it's warmer, it's louder. Yeah, the body temperature is is key. I mean, the the head is the hottest part of, part of our body, and in order to actually get a and maintain a good night's sleep, you have to have a cool temperature uh, as far as your head is concerned. But when you start to introduce it to the rest of your body as well it creates such discomfort that it creates an arousal event. And when you're starting to get aroused in the middle of the night because of these discomforts and whether it's noise or whether it's the heat, then of course that disruption now affects your total sleep time. And that again affects your total sleep quality. It begs the inevitable question, what should one do to counter some of this? Well, I think a lot of it is the the most obvious based on what we've already talked about. If you can have blind out, uh, blackout blinds, that will be most helpful, especially for people who do shift work uh, and, and have to sleep during the day as well. Like th- those things can help tremendously uh, to have proper cooling systems, whether it's air conditioning or a, a, a good fan in your in your room, that would be very helpful as well. And just to be... Sleep in a cool, uh, comfortable, um, 
like clothing, I think that would be most helpful. And and once you get to to those, at, at the again, the more controllable things that you can do, that should at least get you a better chance of a good night's sleep. And what are some of those controllable things? Because we've talked about them in the past. There's clearly the ways of, you know, if it's light out, you probably shouldn't be looking at your phone in bed, for instance, or, you know, trying trying to set yourself up for uh, for a successful night's sleep involves some routines you should probably stick to no matter how light it is. Yeah, it, it really all comes back down to having an adequate sleep time, meaning the total amount of sleep that you want to achieve should be regulated to, to a certain number that's conducive to, to achieving a good night's sleep. But then maintaining a good sleep schedule is key. And so when you think about the time to bed and time to wake, you try to keep that consistent as much as you can. And then when you start to introduce technology, especially for, for kids, as we get into the summertime, the biggest problem with sleep are actually with teenagers because now they, they feel like, oh, I don't have to go wake up early for class and therefore they're going to sleep late. And so they're not going to maintain their schedule. But introducing it to that is maybe added video time, added video game time, or using the phones and tablets. You try to avoid all of those because, again, those may delay even further the the time that you get to bed because of the bright lights that they emit. I realize one of the things you probably should never do is get too anxious about not sleeping. There are some times mm-hmm. when it is warm, um, you know, the light, lights up, you're not as tired as you thought, or you wake up earlier than you hoped to, can't go back to sleep. I guess one of the keys is not to get too too anxious about it because that that must that seems like it probably is a self defeating self defeating emotion. Exactly, and 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 one of the biggest challenges is when you are anxious about sleep. And, and because most of us still, obviously, unlike the, the teenagers, we still have to get to work. We still have a schedule that we need to meet. And when you start to get anxious, you start to clock watch. And so these are things that you want to avoid. And in fact, avoiding to uh, knowing that what time you have to wake up is important, but to actually have a clock in front of you to, that gives you the ability to keep looking at it every hour thinking, OK, it's been an hour. I haven't slept. Now it's two hours. I still haven't slept. And by the time you get to four hours, what you're now thinking is, I only have four hours left before I have to get to work. So you want to avoid those things because now it now doesn't become just this psychological factor, but just it becomes an emotional factor. You you start to now get all riled up and your body, your adrenaline starts to kick in. And you really want to avoid any situation like that because you really can't get yourself down from that in a given period of time that will be, uh, that'll allow you to achieve that good night or good time of sleep during the day, or during the evening. What's, what's your take on AIDS, on sleep AIDS, like melatonin, for instance? There's lots out there that, that say they mm-hmm. can help you. What, what do you recommend to people who are looking for a little helping hand when it comes to, uh, comes to sleeping? Well, melatonin is, is very helpful, as long as you do it in the right way or use it in the right way. People often misconstrue that melatonin Oops, I may have just lost Cox. No worries. Cox Tango is a sleep therapist here in Vancouver. We've been talking about uh, sleeping in the summer and in the spring in this hot temperatures. Um, and we just, uh, we'll try and catch up with, oh, we have him back. There he is. See, yeah. we thought you lost yes. you there, but here you are again. No, no. <laughs> Here I am. No worries yeah. about that. We were just talking about uh, we were talking about sleep aids in general. I mean, I guess melatonin is one of them, but there are many. Uh, and just yes. what your advice is for people who are looking for a helping hand when it comes to, to getting a night's rest. 
No, so for melatonin, it is naturally produced in our body. So what we want to do is take it at the right time, conducive to our natural sleep patterns. People often misconstrue melatonin like a sleeping pill. But if you took melatonin in the middle of the day, you're not going to feel sleepy. What you do is you take it within your natural cycles, and it helps boost the amount of melatonin to allow you to maintain sleep during the night. So taking it at the right times and taking it at the right doses are, are very key. But it's more of an aid rather than an actual sedative that you would imagine a sleeping pill to be. And I guess there are some definitely, I mean, I was reading up a bit on this, there are definitely some dietary alcohol do's and don'ts if you're having trouble sleeping. Exactly. So people, all, again, misconstrue alcohol as, okay, it can be a sleep aid because I'm going to get drowsy and I'll fall asleep. But actually, when alcohol starts to break down in our body in the middle of the night and sugars are produced, it actually creates arousal events for us. So we actually don't sleep as well as a result of it. So to avoid, you know, consuming alcohol, obviously everything in moderation, but uh, avoiding it to to actually become a sleep aid is, is key and just take it in moderation for casual use. And at what point in your sleeplessness, because I know during the pandemic, a lot of people suffered from insomnia just with the stress and the change of routine and so on. But at what point these days in your sleeplessness should you consider consulting someone uh, who knows more about this? I think, you know, obviously there's acute forms of sleep disorders that are out there. And, And when you're starting to get into a cycle where it's affecting your ability to perform during the day, and you can't get out of it. I think it's very important to consult a, a professional because when you start to have sleep problems and you start to have self, self-help self kind of mechanisms that you really don't know what you're doing and you're grasping at straws, you can actually be ruining your sleep more than you're helping it. And as a result, when you start to ruin your sl- sleep for an extended period of time, thinking you are doing the right thing, and but you're actually doing the wrong thing, it's harder to correct later on. So let's just say if it's a weak period of time, you haven't been able to correct it, maybe it is something that you want to really start to investigate and talk to your doctor and maybe even uh, have you referred to a sleep specialist for that. Well, summer is always a nice time of year, but it does sometimes cause some complications. In my case, it's mostly just because when you wake up on a Sunday morning and it's beautiful out, you don't roll over and go back to bed. You get up and you want to go enjoy. So, uh, Cox Tango, as always, thank you so much for your time tonight. Great advice. Thank you so much for having me and I always enjoy being here. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.